The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyad, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me today are Eric Jacobson, who has some really good one-liners, one of which he has sent to me is, I'm always wrong, never try to be right, plan to be wrong, and make a plan in advance. I wish our policymakers took that advice to heart. But Eric, introduce yourself to the audience. Who are you? Which background? What have you done throughout your career? What are you doing currently? Absolutely. First off, thank you for having me on. It's a true honor, particularly during your week of vindication and validation, sir. Don't, don't um, jinx it, man. Don't jinx it. I got a lot more wood, wood to chop, but if I'm right, then it's going to happen quickly. Maybe not as wood as I think. But anyway, please. So my background, I run a communications firm, a really small communications firm. And before that, I worked in technology. I ran an IT company and did IT services. And then in 1999, I worked for an internet startup in the middle of the dot-com bust. I was their web development coordinator. And in 2000, when everything looks, looked like it was going to go upside down, I went and got my master's degree in communication studies from the SI Newhouse School at Syracuse University, which is a public creation studies is basically advanced statistics and research methods. And before that, the way I got involved in the stock market was actually in 1984, there was a game called Millionaire for the Macintosh, which was a stock market simulator. And I won it and became a millionaire by save scumming, which is where you save before you make a move and then you restore it to the previous move so that you can make sure you made the right move. And then that is some old school video game hacking. <laughs> it wasn't called save scumming at the time, but man, that's what the gamers call it today. I got first real experience with the the stock market, the way most people do in high school with paper-based trading. And back then, stocks were still in fractions. So you needed to look at the paper every day and figure out which stocks you could buy and sell and that sort of thing. And I really, really fell in love with it then. And I wanted to make my money work for me. So when E-Trade came along, I started investing or trading in 1998. This was back when they had $15 commissions for limit orders. And I started with $1,000 that I had earned from working $4.25 an hour at Electronics Boutique. And just so everybody knows, that was above minimum wage back in the day. And I thought, just like every new trader, maybe I'm a natural at this and plan to turn that $1,000 into $100,000 in a matter of month. But when you're looking at commissions at $15, it means you're spending 1.5% of your portfolio getting in and out of a trade. So what do you end up doing? You end up looking at price. 
And so I bought penny stocks thinking, okay, all I need is this penny stock to go up to $100 or to ten, uh, to $1 and I can make a fortune. But like when you're starting off, you think in terms of price not percentage and you later realize that wanting a, a stock that's a dollar or a stock that's a penny to go to a dollar is like wanting a stock that's $10 to go to $1,000. It's really not going to happen. But I ended up changing my strategy in 1999 and going into tech stocks because they were the meme stocks of the era and did pretty well up until the dot-com bust where everything went upside down. The, the account got completely, I think at the end of it, I had some shares of Nortel Networks and some shares of Silicon Graphics. Silicon Graphics was the company that made the computers that did 3D animation. So like The Abyss, Jurassic Park, all the movies in the 90s. My dad worked for it. So I bought the those stocks. And SGI went bankrupt. And Nortel, I think, eventually went bankrupt. But I think I gave up and ended up pulling maybe $50 out of the account. So then I spent the next two years reading books and taking stock market classes and really, really wanting to figure it out. So I started up again in 2004. And this time I decided, okay, don't focus on stock price. Let's buy real But I did the second mistake that all investors do. And that's, you look at the best in breed in the space. And then you look at the second also run. And you think to yourself, okay, well, the also run is going to have to eventually perform as well as the best in breed. So I would buy Under Armour instead of Nike or B&G Foods instead of Pepsi and think that would work. Uh, and it did not work well. I also got into a lot of IPOs. I bought Monster Energy when it came out, but I kept flipping them. And even then, we're still paying commissions. I think the lowest I ever got my commissions down to was $4 uh, because I'd been with Schwab for so long. But in August of 2007, I pulled a lot out and went to cash. And a lot of people are going to laugh at the reason why. But I defend this guy. Jim Cramer came out in 2007 and said the Fed knew nothing and that they had gotten it all wrong and that he'd been talking to people that he knew and everything was going to go completely upside down. And so I got out in August 2007 and avoided the crash. And in March of 2009, when the S&P 500 bottomed, I looked at the S&P at 666 and I thought, thank God I missed that. And a lot of new investors, I think they do that. They have schadenfreude. They, they feel happy that they missed the crash. That's the wrong thought. When you see the S&P has sold off 57.69% from its all-time high, you don't think, thank God I missed that. You think buying opportunity, everything's on sale. And so I started to develop a strategy when I realized that one week after the S&P bottomed at that time, it was up 13%. In two weeks, it was up 18 In four weeks, it was up 26%. And one year later, it was up 70%. And so from 2000 to 2011 was a lost decade, but it's only a lost decade if you stop putting money to work. And the trick is you have to be able to program yourself to look at huge sell-offs as sales and buying opportunities. And so I started developing rules. And some of the rules that I developed was the one that you mentioned earlier, which is I'm always wrong. Uh, and there's a positive way to look at it, but I'm more of a pessimist. So I use the, the pessimistic way. But if I buy a stock, it almost always goes lower immediately after I bought it. And so I shouldn't have bought it at that price, right? I should have waited. However, if I buy a stock, if I open a position, it goes higher. Well, then holy crap, I'm wrong again because I should have bought more at that price because I was wrong. It went higher. And when I sell a stock, if it goes higher, I'm wrong. But if it goes lower after I sell it, then I should have sold more. And it's more, you have to stop thinking 
that investing is about wanting to be right. You shouldn't want to be right. You should want to be rich. And so the idea is you need to have a plan for what are you going to do next? And the nice thing about the stock market is for how complex it can be if you overanalyze it, you look at your squigglies and you get all wrapped up in the indicators. There's only two directions any stock or the stock market can go. It's up or down. So you need to have a plan for both of those directions. And since I'm an always long investor, I don't short outside of my speculative portfolio then I need to plan for adding to positions when they sell off and taking profits to positions when they go higher. So my rule is never go all in and you buy in stages and sell in stages and you do it small. And so when the market goes down or your stock goes down, you only have two moves you can do. And those moves aren't buy and sell. Those moves are buy or hold. And when the stock market's rallying or your asset is rallying, there's only two moves you can do there too. But again, it's not buy or sell, it's sell or hold. So I only buy on red days. I only buy into weakness and I only sell on green days. And I recall in, in readings on your notes that uh, you have multiple different accounts. So you segregate out your different trading strategies and approaches. If, if that's the case, what's, what's the thinking behind that? So for me, when I was, so trying to start businesses all the way through my 20s, when I was 30, I switched careers and went from the IT company I had started with a friend, moved from North Carolina to Portland and switched into public relations. And at that time, I had $5,000 in savings. I had grossed $10,000 before taxes in 2006. And I started the new job with $36,000 a year salary. And even with inflation, $36,000 was not a lot of money in 2007. And I looked at my portfolios and I realized I had two choices. If I wanted to retire, I could either invest or not invest. And if I didn't invest, I knew I'd never be able to retire. And if I did invest, there's two outcomes. I'll be able to retire or I won't be able to retire, but I need to invest. And so I realized I needed this to succeed. So instead of having one strategy, I needed to diversify across different strategies. So I have my flagship portfolio. I have three portfolios that I trade publicly so everybody can watch. The first one is the investments in play. And it's the biggest, it's the biggest and most successful portfolio. It's the one I've been running the longest. And then I have a speculation portfolio that is one half of one allocation size of the investments in play portfolio. Cause I think everybody wants to screw around. Everybody wants to try shorting. Everybody wants to try stupid, stupid moves. So I decided okay, I'm going to set myself a certain amount of money that I'm allowed to lose. And I'll just screw around with different things. Maybe I'm good at options trading. No, I'm not. Maybe I'm good at shorting the markets. Not really. No, no, I'm not. But this is where I get to do it. And then I have pandemic portfolio, which started in May of 2020. I had done an experiment throughout 2018 where I took $20,000 and put $20,000 each into SoFi, Wealthfront, and Betterment. And I wanted to test robo-advisors. So I put the same amount of money in, let it go for a year, and set all three to their most aggressive approaches. And all three rallied less during rallies and sold off more during market sell-off. And so I just looked at it and went, okay, well, it's really stupid to use robo-advisors. You're better just investing in S&P tracking fund because at least that way you'll never underperform the benchmark. Sure, you'll never outperform it, 
but going with these robo advisors made no sense because I wouldn't have minded underperformance on the upside, but underperformance on the downside and the upside, it just doesn't make any sense. So I realized I needed to have multiple strategies in myself in my own. So I created the pandemic portfolio and it's been a struggle just because the market's been so wonky since 2020. But outside of that, I have three other portfolios. I have two ETF portfolios and then I have my 401k. And in one ETF portfolio, I manage it like the investments in play where I'm buying and selling in stages. The other ETF portfolio is allowed to buy on pullbacks, but it's never allowed to sell. It's a retirement account. So it needs to constantly build. So even if, you know, what, and it's all ETF. So it's VTI, it's VWO, it's VXUS, GDX, GDXJ. It's a whole bunch of different ETFs, but it buys on weakness and it doesn't sell because it constantly has more funds coming in it. So the object in that one is it's time in the market and timing the market. So you need to just keep building your position over time and growing it up. So that's what that account does. The final account is my self-managed 401k and I call it my dumb money account. And it's run through my business and every single day at the beginning of the year, here's how it starts. Beginning of the year, I figure out how much money do I want to put into the 401k and I divide it into every single trading day and every single day I log in and I buy uh, whatever the amount is of the S&P 500, no matter whether it's up or down. And the reason I started doing it that way was in March of 2020, everybody was saying that the market would test its lows. So throughout April, I was doing one buy a week in my 401k and I skipped three weeks because I assumed that the market was going to test its lows and it never did. And even though that wasn't a huge amount of money that I missed, in terms of like, I could have gotten lower prices on all three of those buys. It made me realize I needed to have an account that truly just followed the buy and hold strategy, where it's just buying every single day, up or down. It just keeps buying the same amount every day. And I don't have a choice because it's a 401k. It's invested in a fund. So it closes, it clears at the end of the day. So it doesn't matter every single day I put the money in. And that's my dumb money account. And the reason I have it is to back up my hubris. What if I'm not as good as I think I am? And I need to be able to retire. I need to have an account that's doing what normal humans are doing and they're not trying to get cute with the markets and try to outsmart the market. I do also think it's good to segregate out the different strategies of accounts so that you're not tempted fund one losing strategy with a winning strategy, right? It's, it's, yeah, yeah. Th- that I think is it. And listen, I mean, you can do it, obviously, if you're tracking it. But the point is you, you, you ideally want to try to structure your yourself to prevent yourself from making mistakes and doubling down on a losing approach because the cycle doesn't favor it with another trading approach, which is run very differently. All the same account is a lot easier when it's the same account than when it's different. Well, in that way, too, you're not running the risk of, as long as you can mentally separate each of the accounts, you're not running the risk of saying, oh my God, I'm doing so well in this portfolio. I need to just abandon my other strategies and use that technique on the other portfolios. You have to have that discipline to remember, okay, this portfolio has to work this way. Because if I'm wrong, I can't retire because I'm not independently wealthy. And as you've heard, even now, I'm not making enough money for my income that I could just save even at 5% interest yields. I need to have my money work for it. And so I've got to cover my bases and make sure that even though my biggest portfolio is the one that I really am successful at, what if I screw up? 
what if one day the approaches I've been taking, it's been working this, like this portfolio has been outperforming. I started Getter in 2018 so that I could start showing what I do because I, there are an infinite number of ways to invest incorrectly, but there's only one way to invest correctly. And that's the way that works for you. And so I was watching all these YouTubers coming up in the 2010s to 2020. And, and a lot of them are telling the wrong advice and charging for their courses. And I feel I, 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 I've served on boards of directors and I've done volunteer work and I realized I don't like giving back by doing what I do for a living. And I wanted to help people see that normal people can beat the market and you can watch how I do it and you can listen to all my disciplines and strategies, but take what works for you and leave the rest. And and I just, my whole, all of my basis for all of my strategies has come from listening to different people. So, uh, and I don't deride any voice. I think it's so important that you listen to every voice that's out there. You can disagree but you, you take from what they are. You're not going to be able to invest like Warren Buffett. You're not going to be able to trade like Michael Burry because you don't have the same brain they do and they don't have the same brain you do. What works for you might not work for them and vice versa, but you can learn from them. And so I wanted to create a website where I would just show you how I'm doing it and all the mistakes I make and all the successes I have and you can follow along and maybe I'll show you some ideas of different stocks that you'd like to buy. And maybe, maybe you can just learn from me, but I didn't want to charge. So everything I do for Getter doesn't, there's no courses, there's no paywall. It's all free. And I know you like to focus more on the quality side, which for some people, they don't define it very specifically. For others, they think that as long as it's going up and to the right, it's pretty quality. How do you define what a quality investment is? Yeah. So that's actually my top priority. A lot of people, their top priority is risk management, which is my second priority. But my top priority is picking the right company or asset. And when it comes to buying into a market crash, the only way you can do it is if you've done the work in advance to fully trust that company or asset. So whether you're talking about a stock or gold or Bitcoin, you need to be able to have uh, a full faith in that asset. Now, the way you cover your ass, um, part of my language, is is to mitigate your losses by knowing how much you're risking. So uh, some people will cut losses and I've learned whenever I've cut losses that that's always, always, always been a horrendous mistake for me. So the way I mitigate my losses and the way I do risk management is I know before I even make my first buy how much am I going to put to work in that company? And the way that I pick companies is is by... The stock market is the only store where no matter how small you are, you can buy a Ferrari now. And it's because of the not only commissions being eliminated, but also the fact that they introduced fractional share trading. And that's one of the reasons you'll never see me talking about prices in terms of dollar amounts, like how much am I putting to work? Because I don't want somebody who has $1,000 look at my account and go, I can't perform like him because he's got so much money that I can't do those strategies. Or somebody who's bigger than I am looking at my portfolio and going, well, I can't do that because I've got so much more money than this. No, it's, it's not true. My strategy scaled regardless. And now that there's commission trading, you can go in the stock market and buy the best of breed. So the first question I ask myself when I'm looking for a new investment is, 
what sector I'm in, am I interested in? And then once I find the sector, I buy the best in breed. Like a lot of people, they'll go in, they'll be like, okay, I want EVs and Tesla's the best in breed, but I'd rather buy Lucid. And my logic here is, unfortunately, the real world and the stock market isn't a Disney movie. The underdog is never guaranteed to outperform the best in breed. So don't buy the underdog. There's no promises it will ever exceed. I constantly hear people make the argument that AMD is going to beat NVIDIA. Well, I've been in tech and I've been using NVIDIA's products since 1998. And although AMD bought ATI, which was a second-run GPU company in the 2000s, they always underperform. Now, dollar to bang for buck performance, AMD usually has better bang for buck performance in their video cards. But they've never built a video card that was more advantageous than NVIDIA. Could it happen? Absolutely, it could happen. But that's not my job as an investor. My job is to go with the best of breed. I own AMD in my speculative portfolio because it's better than Intel. AMD always makes better CPUs than Intel. So if you're talking about wanting a, 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 a central processing unit manufacturer, you go with AMD. But if you're talking with AI or GPU, you go with NVIDIA. Now, it might change. But when you're first starting, you start with the best in breed. So if you're looking at athletic apparel, you don't buy Under Armour, you buy Nike. If you're looking at, and this is, it, it helps when you know what you're talking about. You get a company like Corsair, which came public in 2021. Again, I've been a gamer my whole life. Corsair's products are not as good as Logitech. And I was already in Logitech. Logitech's the best in breed. Do not buy Corsair over Logitech. But you need to know the sector you're looking at. And it doesn't mean buy what you know. It means learn about what you want to buy. And so like I got into aeronautics in 2012 and I bought Boeing because it was the best in breed at that time. And so that's how you start. You start by buying the best of breed. On a very simple, I like the way that you're framing it in terms of you should know the proper reasons for why you're buying something, right? The case of Intel and AMD versus AMD and, and something else, NVIDIA. Um, does that mean that you're simply going to, let, let's say you've defined this is the sector, this is the industry you want to be in, you determine what's best in breed based on what the market itself thinks, market cap. I, I, how do you determine what actually best in breed means? Right. For me, best in breed. So even though I'm really good at finances, I'm no CFO. So although I will look at the balance sheet and I will look at the fundamentals, that's not as valuable to me as learning the management team and their track record. Like, how does this company perform over time? So if you're looking at something like Nike, one of the great things about Nike is not only does it, they have hard times, they always come back. And another real benefit to Nike is that whenever they get a new CEO, this, the new CEO performs as well or better than the previous CEO. So you don't have to worry about leadership in Nike as much as you have to worry about leadership in Tesla or leadership in NVIDIA. So if you're an NVIDIA or Tesla and Jensen Wong has a heart attack or Elon Musk gets run over by one of his own cars on stage, you've got a big issue there because that's part of your narrative. And so when your narrative breaks, you have to consider whether or not you want to stick around in, in the company. The other thing you need to do is look at the stock over time. So if you're looking at a stock like Apple, it regularly pulls back more than 20% from its previous all-time high and sometimes pulls back more than 30%. If you look at NVIDIA, it pulls back a minimum of 15% from its all-time high. And since I opened the position in 2016, NVIDIA has pulled back more than 40% four times. 
more than 50% twice. And just last year, pulled back 68.79%. So you have to ask yourself, can you stomach that kind of volatility? Because if you can't, that immediately eliminates the investment, no matter how good it is. If you're in a stock and it pulls back 50% and you feel the need to sell it, then there's two problems. Either one, you didn't have the stomach or the risk appetite initially, or two, you're sized wrong. I find that if I am losing sleep over any investment, it, it's almost always not the investment. It's almost always that I'm too big in it. Which is good to the name of the space, which is you know, investing in market crashes because uh, those are those drawdowns. And as long as something is best and believed in a market leader, as you alluded to, odds favor, it's going to come back. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now... Back to our discussion. Well, and that's the thing. So we can get into it because I'm pretty sure that's what everybody's been wanting to know is how crazy I am during stock market sell-offs. But ever since 2009 and seeing everything recover, I realized I needed to reprogram my brain because the great thing about a stock market sell-off or a systemic risk, and to be clear, systemic sell-offs are terrible because somebody's getting hurt whether people are actually getting killed because there's an actual crisis or whether people are just losing money in the stock market. When I get giddy about sell-offs, it's because I'm buying stuff at cheaper prices. It's not because the, the market has no emotion and it sucks. Because when something terrible happens, you have to focus on the, the fact that you're buying. You have to ignore the emotional capital that's being placed. So I want to make that clear that like, if you're looking at something what's going on in Israel or Ukraine right now, it's horrible human loss. But the effects that it has on the stock market can be dramatic. And the stock market is the only store on the planet where everything goes on sale and the buyers run out of the store. A systemic market sell-off is a sale because every company is selling off for the same reason. Because of this, the sell-off has either reduced, if not eliminated, sector or company-specific risk, unless the sell-off has a direct relationship to specific companies. So in 2008, 2009, obviously, you want to be very careful getting into real estate or financials because they were directly affected. But everything else wasn't. The key that you have to remember is every single sell-off feels the exact same way in this key issue. They all feel like this time is different. We're really going to die. And it happened in 2009. It happened in 2012. It happened in 2018. And it happened in 2020. You have to bet against the end of the world. If for other reason. But if the world ends, what are you going to do with all the money that you liquidated? Probably won't help you. Maybe you could throw it at zombies during an apocalypse or use it to keep yourself warm during a nuclear holocaust. But going to cash isn't helpful. If you're like me, I'm 46 years old. I'm betting I won't be able to retire before 67. So that's a 21-year time horizon. As investors, you can't visualize what 20 years looks like. And if you listen to CNBC, this can be the most distracting thing for you because they'll have 
who they call investors on. And more often than not, their time horizon is 12 to 18 months, not 20 years. So when they're worried about getting in and out of a stock, that doesn't affect you. If, you have, if you're younger than me, your time horizon is longer than me. So the trick is you need to pick companies that you believe in for the long term, that have the narrative that you think will succeed for the long term. That way, whenever they sell off, you add to them because they're on sale. Like, And also, another thing that I do is I always have a, a wish list of companies I'd like to get in at certain prices. Um, I wasn't in, and here's another, another throw back to, to, to Kramer. Kramer turned from being bearish on Tesla to bullish on Tesla in 2019. And that made me start paying more attention to Tesla. And I realized I really wanted to get it, but it was trading at five or $600 a share. And I wasn't ready. I thought it was, it was too, it was too pricey at that price. And it ended up rallying into March of 2020. And then it sold off and I had already done the work in advance. So my first buy went through at $550 and my second buy went through at $360. And three months later, Tesla, and that was it. I was only able to make two buys. So I didn't even get close to a full allocation. But I increased my quantities as, I, as they sell off. But three months later, I was up more than a double. Tesla had beaten its all-time high. So it was trading, I think, at $1,100. And I have another rule at that point. So if a stock goes up really quick after you buy it, you have to take something off the table. If you get a double within a year, it's a no-brainer. But you don't sell it all. You sell half of it. Why do you sell half of it? Well, it could always pull back, especially when it's broken an all-time high. There's so much resistance there. It's possible it could go all the way back down to your cost basis. You're going to feel like an idiot leaving a double on the table. But if you sell all of it, you lock in that double. Okay, you, you feel pretty smart at the time. But Tesla went from 1100 to 4500 If I had sold the whole position, I would have missed out on a quadruple. And this is where I say I'm always wrong. If going back, yeah, sure, looking at the chart, 2020 hindsight's the most dangerous thing about chart. Everybody thinks they can predict where a stock's going to go because you can see where it's come from. But you don't know. And so Tesla goes from 1100 to 4500 becomes the biggest position in my portfolio. I had no money in it. I've taken all the profit out of it. And it was because I had done the work in advance to say, that's a company I want to buy if it gives me the right price. There are plenty of companies that I'm watching right now that may never, ever get down to the price where I want to buy them. But Warren Buffett always said the great thing about the stock market is it's it's not baseball. You don't there's no called strike. You keep your bat on your shoulder until the right pitch comes across the plate. It's it's hard to, for people to, to understand that it's much more about magnitude than frequency, which is really what the fat pitch is. You don't have to keep on swinging or trying to get singles. The game is won by a couple of home runs and and that's it until the next game, right? It's, it's we are hard with to talk about rewire your brain. We are hardwired to think in terms of getting consistency when in reality, that's not the way investing works. Right. And there's a great book called One Good Trade. And one of the lines in it is that you're not getting rich off of one trade. You're building a house brick by brick. So you have to look at each investment. And this is where everything Michael talks about is so pivotal because it's about looking at the left side of the equation. Instead of thinking, oh my God, look at how much money I could have made if I'd left it in Tesla. That's looking at the right side of the equal sign. You don't do that. You don't think about how much money you could make. Because if you do that, you'll screw yourself up in the other direction. I remember I was listening to a Motley Fool podcast and one of the investors talked about how he sold Nike at $67, closed his position entirely because he didn't think it could go any higher than that. And then Nike went to 170, 180 in 2021. Even now it's trading at 106. 
I don't have any vision about how high it's to go. When I got into NVIDIA, it was trading at $75 a share, which is pre-split. And it was pretty close to its all-time high. And here's another thing about best-of-breed companies. They're always expensive. So if you look at the price to earnings multiple, if you look like anything, you'll never get in. You'll never get in. A company like NVIDIA, Adobe, Tesla, these are always, always overpriced. But I got into NVIDIA at $75. They ended up selling off to $69. And split adjusted, my cost basis is $15.67. And it sold off to $14.33. With NVIDIA trading at $400, do you think I care about whether I got in at $15.67 or $14.33? I'm a long-term investor. It's about looking at that long time horizon. And as NVIDIA went up, I sold a lot of it. So right now, instead of having a 25x position, I'm only up 1,400%. But my cost basis is negative $259. It means for every share I hold, I also have $259 that's added to my portfolio's bottom line. If NVIDIA went to zero tomorrow, I would still have septupled my original investment. And that's buying all the way down because I did all of that work in advance. I just use Excel and I figure out all my buy targets and all my price targets for every single one of my positions. So I know this is where I'm going to take profits. And it stings. I hate taking profits. But like Boeing in 2018, it was 12 or 15% of my portfolio. It was horrendous. And Boeing was trading at 400. It got all the way up to about 440. And I kept taking profits over and over again. And every time I took profits, I was kicking myself because I was like, I'm selling this amazing company that's going to be $1,000 in five years. What happened to Boeing? In 2020, in thanks to the two plane crashes, it went from 440 high to $89 even. Boeing is still the most profit-generating uh, position in nominal terms that I've held, but it's now one of my, I think, bottom five biggest positions. If I hadn't sold all those profits for something dollars, I would be hating myself now. But like, I hate taking profits. I'm wired so backwards now that I actually get giddy. Like in March 2020, the market was hitting the, 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 the circuit breakers. It was awesome. I was throwing money on the fire every single day. The next day I was down because I'm always wrong, right? So every day I'm putting just tons and tons of money on the fire and I'm down the next day. And that's what you got to be prepared for when buying in a stock market crash. You got to assume the next move is going to be headed lower and put that buy in anyway. Because if you're listening to somebody like Michael Burry and he says the market's not going to sell off, it is, or it's going to sell off to 50%, you wait until the market sells off to 50%. Let me tell you, the S&P is a good bargain at 20% down. It's a good bargain at 25, 30, 35. My favorite story about this is Mohammed El Arian, who is an economist who I respect greatly, came on CNBC about three days before the market bottomed in March 2020. And he told people, you shouldn't put money to work because it had 30% more downside. And the market sold off one to two percent more and bottomed. If you'd listened to him, you wouldn't have, you'd miss a generational buying up. We don't know how low it's going to go. So you just have to make the buys in advance and increase your quantity like a spring. It's getting pushed down harder and harder. That's more and more potential energy that can spring back. So the lower the market goes, the lower a stock goes, the more money you put to work. But I have never, again, been doing this for 25 years. I've never bought a full allocation. Even when it's sold off, I always have cash on the sidelines to buy at lower levels. The, the reason I have an allocation target is to know when I need to take profits, not know when I need to add more to a position. We'll be back after a quick break. 
Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Just to reset the room for the remaining 10, 15 minutes. Everybody, please make sure you follow Eric because you can tell very passionate and certainly has a, a great view on how to think about the long term, which is hard to find, unfortunately, on Eck, keeping what I call the basement traders and the way they tend to look at things. How do you know if something that was best in breed is no longer best in breed? So you mentioned the example of Silicon Graphics, which I actually remember that company myself back in the day, and it went under. But that was best in breed at some point. So what what causes you to reevaluate the, the quality question? Absolutely. Yeah. It's it's funny because Silicon Graphics came back. I think Rackspace bought it and then they took over its ticker. I think that was 10 years ago and then it went bankrupt again. <laughs> so don't take that ticker. If you're a company and you want to come public, leave SGI alone. But so the way I do it is... I'm not looking at a, a company in terms of how much it's sold off or even if it's gotten weak. Like if you're talking about a company like Nike, it's had, I've owned it since 2012. It's had many challenges over that time period. But a company going through a challenge doesn't mean you sell it. I have key rules that mean sell it. So a good example of this is if it's a narrative breaking issue. So in 2021, I bought AT&T not because it was best of breed, but because it had a great dividend. Great dividend. I wanted exposure to cell phone provider space. And at that time, it owned Time Warner and HBO, which meant it was this unique company being a high dividend payer cell phone provider service provider with that streaming kicker. And three weeks after I bought it, the CEO announced that they were selling Time Warner and they were cutting the dividend. And I sold immediately that day. The stock actually popped. I actually walked away with 2 or 3% game. It didn't matter if I was down or up. That broke my narrative. The only two reasons I was in that stock was for the high dividend at HBO. So that was gone. And now it's down about 50% from where I sold it. Another rule that I have is financial regularities. If a company comes out and tells you that some of their earnings reports are wrong or that the CFO screwed up or whatever, you dump it immediately. This also happened in 2021. I was in Plug Power, which was at the point considered best in breed in the hydrogen power space. And they came out and announced that there were financial regularities in a number of its past earnings reports. And I was at, I happened to be at my cost basis. So I sold with no loss. It's down 83% from where I sold it. And a third way, third reason to get out is if the CEO or CFO suddenly resigns. And it doesn't really matter what the rule is. And an example of this is Logitech, which I've been in since 2016. I love Logitech. But Bracken Darrell came out and announced that he'd be stepping down. And nobody knew why. And so I had capital remaining in that position. So what I did was instead of closing the position, I sold all the remaining capital. So I had no money at risk. I was only playing with the house's money. And Logitech has now rallied 25% higher from where Bracken Darrow left the company. And he left to be the CEO of, I think, BF Corp, which I personally can't imagine going from gaming hardware to clothing. But ask my wife, she thinks my clothing style is horrible. So I guess that that's part of the problem. But 
I still had faith in the company, but the CFO left. So that's where I have to take action. I don't necessarily have to close the position, but anything that breaks my narrative and the narrative is this company's what, how's it, how's it going to succeed over the long term? And so management's a big part of that. So if the CEO or the CFO suddenly resigns, you got to reevaluate the position at that point. But typically what I do is I, I, I'll just, if I have a profit, I'll just take out all the remaining capital. So Disney, oh God, I've been in Disney since 2012 and it's trading at the same price that it was trading in 2014. So that's a fun one. Bob Iger came back this year. I still had capital in it and it had sold off to about 80. When it rallied to 91 or 92, uh, I realized I needed like I still have faith in Disney for the long term, but what am I doing risking any actual capital in this position? I, I needed to get capital out. So that's what I did earlier this year. I did the same thing for Dow Chemical. I really believe in Dow Chemical for the long term. But again, it started to show weakness. It looked like we were in a bad place. So when it was at $55 a share, I, I sold the remaining capital and kept the remainder of the position. Absolutely. So that, that's a great question because we have so many variables on the global macroeconomic stage that are facing us. So one of the things that I do in my ETF accounts, so for people who are uncomfortable buying individual companies, there are, if there are sectors that I want exposure to, but I don't feel comfortable even buying the best of breed, I will revert to buying ETFs. So for example, healthcare, I'm not super interested in following any of the companies in healthcare and biopharma, I'm not super interested. And I don't like the fact that like Biogen can sell off 40% a day. They get bad returns on one of their tests. So what do you do? So you look at buying something like BHT, which is Vanguard's healthcare ETF, or you look at buying something like IBB, which is the biopharma ETF. But I also want exposure on the international stage because there is the possibility going forward that American companies don't perform as well. Now, realistically, most of the American companies that I invest in are global companies. So even though they're based in America, they have global reach. In fact, Logitech is based in Switzerland. It's not even an American company. And so you have to look at who's got potential international growth too. And so... What I'll do is I'll take whatever the, whatever the percentage of a portfolio is that I want to attribute to something like international. And I'll actually divide it into a basket. And I'll do this in my investments in play portfolio. Like I wanted financial exposure, but I didn't want more than one allocation size to finances. So I have six different positions that take up one allocation. So it's like JP Morgan, SoFi, Visa. These are all in one allocation size because I didn't want more risk than that. And so the way that you manage your portfolio can help you determine like what kind of exposure you want. So with international exposure, I own VXUS, which is Vanguard's international fund without United States companies in it. I already have the United States companies. I don't need exposure. So I'm not buying VT. Why would you do that? Buy VXUS. I also own VWO, which is the emerging markets. And then I go even micro. I like Brazil. So I own EWZ. Israel, I believe in for the long term, and it's coming under so much pressure that I'm looking at opening the position if it gets to its 2022 low from last year, that will be where I start the position. But like controlling your risk by controlling your quantity is key. So for example, I always laugh because it turns out I end up having a 60-40 portfolio, but it turns out it's not 60% stocks, 40% bonds, it's 60% invested, 40% cash. And when I went into the March 2020 crash, I actually had 60% cash just on a complete fluke or combination of things. Again, I'm going to reference it one more time. 
follow Jim Cramer. He's a clown. He's a self-admitted clown. He does it so that he makes long-term investing interesting because long-term investing is boring. It's such a long time horizon. And he's almost a permable. But when he shifts bearish, pay attention. So he came back from the Super Bowl early. And on February 6th of 2020, told everybody the pandemic was going to be a lot more serious than anyone thought. So like that was really good advice. And it's why I say never deride anybody's opinion because you'll learn from everybody. You don't have to agree with them, but make sure you listen to bulls and bears and listen to people. I focus more on the people that disagree with me than the people who agree with me because I want to know what am I missing? Like, what is my investment thesis? But going in, like we we're saying about right now, the best trick is to, when you're buying into a market crash, make sure you use small enough quantity that you'll always have cash on the sidelines. And like, it's really challenging. The biggest challenge that's facing me is that I always have too much cash. My big worry during a market crash isn't that I'm buying too early. It's that I'm not buying enough. Because as we go down, because the value of the investments go down, my cash hoard increases in terms of percentage. So at the bottom of the March 2020 crash, I still had 38% cash. And even though I'm beating the S&P 500 in my investments in play portfolio, the way that I prepare for a potential market crash, I've been bearish all year and I don't allow my personal outlook to affect discipline. But as we're reaching higher highs, I'll take profits more and more. And it's, it's hilarious because Mike will always talk about how X, uh, FinX is the odd lot indicator. I've discovered that FinTube, whatever the YouTube is, is the odd lot indicator in December of 2021, I made a video about one of my holdings draftings. And I said it was, it had pulled back from $65 to $28. And I said I wasn't going to add to my position again until it got down to $20. And I had somebody leave a comment that said, it's never going down to $20. How new to the markets are you? It turns out I was wrong. It didn't go down to $20. It went down to $9.66. And this brings up another thing that I always say, one of my other idioms, is that as investors, we need to think in terms of possibility, not probability. Never say it won't break that bottom. Those are the biggest mistakes I've ever made are when you trust the bottom. It can always go lower. If you went back into the 1990s and you told people that GM was going to declare bankruptcy and zero out its equity in 20 years, everyone would have told you you were crazy. This is a venerable institution. This is a widow's and orphan stock. You can't be serious. Anything is possible. And along this line, if you're looking at something like, here's another mistake I made that reiterated the importance of of trusting the asset. I got into Bitcoin. Like The worst thing that can happen to people is getting into a new investment class when it's in a bull rally. What you want to do is you want to get into it in a bear rally. If you start investing or start trading in a bull rally, you get overconfident. You think you can't go wrong. You think you can't make a mistake. And then when you get into a sell-off, it'll kill you. Well, I got into Bitcoin in December of 2017 after it had hit $20,000 and started pulling back. And it dropped all the way to $6,000. And throughout 2018, everybody, all the then experts in the space said 6000 was the bottom. 6000 was going to hold. And of course, in November of 2018, 6000 didn't hold. And so I got out. And I got that Schadenfreude feeling when it went down to 3137. And this is what reinforced that rule. Whenever you feel Schadenfreude, that means buy. And if you fully trust that asset, and I didn't fully trust Bitcoin at that time, I thought it could go lower. But now when it sells off, I buy. Like I trust it. It's just I change the quantities. The further down it goes, the more I'll add to it. And I have a plan for Bitcoin. 
all the way down to 3137. It'll probably never get there. I have a plan for if it breaks 3137. So my view is I have a, a set amount of money I want to put to work. So I need to plan the entire thing in advance because if it gets down to 3137, I don't want to be all in at 10,000. I want to still be able to put more to work at 3137. If it gets down to 2,500, if it gets down to 1,250, these other support levels, I want to be able to buy at those levels. And it could go to zero. So I need to know immediately at the very beginning before I start, what's the maximum amount of money I want to risk on this asset? Erica, I think this is just a lot of wisdom and a lot of things that you're saying here. So how do people find more of your work? Basically, anything getirked.com. So like getirked.com, youtube.com slash getirk, Twitter slash getirk. When I was a kid, my dad nicknamed me Irk, and that's where the name comes from. Eric goes down to Irk. So my company name when I was 14 was Irk's Productions. My current company is Irk's LLC, and I decided to name it Get Irk because I thought it could be funny. Don't get mad, Get Irked. Everyone, go Get Irked. Make sure you follow Eric here on X. Again, I'll have this as an edited podcast a couple of days here, and hopefully we'll all be able to enjoy the weekend. And given that I'm not eating until Sunday, that statement only applies to you. Thank you, buddy. Appreciate it. Hey, thank you so much, Michael. I, it's such an honor to be on. Thank you, Eric. Cheers, everybody. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Leadlag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Leadlag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.